You're listening to a sermon series by Grace City Church, a church plant in Green Square in Sydney. For more information about us, visit gracecity.com.au. Well, good day there, Grace City. It is great to be with you. My name is Tim. I've missed you. Uh, I don't know about you. I've been away for two weeks, and so I've missed seeing you guys. Uh, my wife got COVID, uh, and so we were in isolation for one week, but then uh, that was actually over Easter, which is sad not to be able to join you guys for that. Uh, but then also we just this last week had a week away as a family. I reckon it was probably the most, actually extended family, it was the most refreshing seven days of the last two years for me. So it was wonderful, nice to be with family, but actually really nice to be back with spiritual family now. So why don't you join me, let's pray and we'll dig into God's word. Father, we thank you so much for your word and the privilege that we have to uh, dig into it now. Uh, we thank you, as Charlie's already reminded us, that th- this is not just a book, uh, but this is the words of the living God. And so we ask, would you pierce our hearts, uh, transform our lives, and actually help us to hear what it is that you're saying to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a guy named H.G. Wells. He was a historian and an author from the last centuries, a British guy. He once said this. He says, I'm an historian and not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Uh, Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Now, to say that Jesus Christ is the center of history is hardly a particularly profound insight. Jesus is literally the center of history. Our calendar revolves around his birth. 2022 is literally 2022 years since Jesus was born. Or at least it's kind of supposed to be. Uh, turns out the guy who did that calendar got his calculations slightly off. So Jesus was probably born in 4 BC. But you get the point. Jesus is the center of history. But H.G. Wells is actually saying more than that Jesus is the center of history. He's saying he's the most dominant figure in history. This penniless preacher from Nazareth is the most dominant figure in all of human history, which is actually a pretty significant thing for a self-professed unbeliever to say. Now, it could be that you're listening in uh, or you're uh, here today and, and you're not yet convinced that Jesus is actually a historical figure. Uh, if that is you, can I encourage you, go back to the podcast from last week. I think it was excellent. So it's on the website. We had a guy named Dr. Mark Stevens come in and just really helpfully share with us some of the historical evidence for the historicity of Jesus. So well worth your listen. Uh, but if we today can accept for a moment that Jesus was a historical figure, uh, whether he's the most dominant one, sure, you can debate that. Uh, there's no denying that he has left an incredible mark on the historical record. What is interesting, though, when, when you think about it, is that he didn't do many of the things that you might typically expect of someone who left a mark like he did. So, for example, he never wrote a book. Uh, he never fought a war or won a war. He never led a country, never ran for political office, never actually traveled all that far from his home. He was a preacher. And more than that, throughout his public ministry, his aim, what he seemed to try to do was stay away from the centers of power and influence and instead stick to the outskirts and the, the villages and the towns of ancient Palestine. So much so that by the time he died, around the year 33 AD, 
almost nobody outside of Palestine actually knew his name. The question that the series that we're just kicking off is designed to ask is how did that guy become what so many have described as the most dominant figure in all of human history? Uh, you might know that we, we recently finished a series in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, it's a book in the Old Testament. It's 31 chapters long. We spent about 10 weeks in it. So it, w- it was a real race, right? Sometimes we're doing three chapters at a time. It was buckle in. There's a lot to cover. This series, uh, we're in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. It's a, a biography of Jesus' life. It's 24 chapters long, but we're not doing 24. We're doing three, and it's roughly 10 weeks long. So in other words... This one we're slowing right down. Uh, don't, I mean, still buckle in, but we're slowing right down so we can zoom in and take a close look at the penniless preacher from Nazareth and figure out what all the fuss is about. And in many ways, I think today's passage is the perfect place to start. And I say that because there's a sense in which today's passage is a microcosm of Jesus' ministry. By which I mean all the seeds are in this passage that would go on to become uh, or to make Jesus the man that he would become and to cause him to leave the mark that he did. And so really, my, my hope, what I'm expecting is that if we can understand today's passage, I think we will be well on our way to understanding who Jesus is, why he came and how it is that he's left the mark that he did. So really what I want to do today is fairly straightforward. I want to explore uh, the passage that was just read out for us under three headings. First of all, the preacher. Second of all, the message. Third, the response. Preacher, message, response. If you have a Bible, get it open. We'll jump in and we'll think about the preacher. Uh, Very quickly on the context. Immediately before this passage, well, we're jumping into chapter four. We actually covered the material of chapters one through uh, three and a half, four and a half, uh, in two separate series last year. But very quickly, before this, Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, the Spirit has come upon him in the form of a dove. The Spirit has driven him out into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days. And now our passage begins with him returning. Uh, from the wilderness. So let's read it together. Chapter 4, verse 14. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Right, so Jesus returns from the wilderness, and this is really where his public ministry, his career as a preacher, really kicks off. And so he's going from town to town, from synagogue to synagogue, preaching around the region of Galilee. Now, Galilee uh, in ancient, ancient Palestine is roughly speaking broken up into three different areas. Um, there's Judea in the south, there's Samaria in the middle, and then there's uh, Galilee in the north. And so Jesus is actually from the region of Galilee, a specific town in Galilee called Nazareth. He, he hasn't returned to the town just yet, but he's in the region and news about him is really starting to spread. And so Luke tells us, uh, everyone praised him. Right? Social media didn't exist back then, but if it did, hashtag you know, Jesus, preacher from Nazareth, would be trending. He's a big deal. And this is significant for the people of Nazareth. You see, Nazareth, Nazareth uh, was as close to a deadbeat town in the region of Galilee as you could get. 
Uh, they had to put up with a phrase, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The implied answer being no. No, no one expected anything from Nazareth. Uh, but finally, the people of Nazareth have an answer. Yes, uh, something good can come out of Nazareth. Something good has come out of Nazareth, and his name is Jesus. This preacher doing the rounds at the moment. It would be the ancient equivalent of, you know, like when... <laughs> A young athlete from sort of a small, obscure country town uh, makes it into the Olympics and everyone in the town is really excited because it's, you know, little Johnny or whoever it is and they all stay up late at night. They go to the pub and the whole town crowds around the little TV to watch. I mean, probably they're all watching it online these days. But, you know, back in the day they were watching and, you know, the school teacher, oh, I remember when little Jesus grazed his knee. And the shopkeeper's like, oh, yeah, young Jesus, polite young fella. You know, he used to come in me shop every Friday. This is is Nazareth, right? Um, uh, They must have been so proud. Uh, The little boy, all grown up, making his mark on the world preacher from Nazareth and then we hear he wants to come home he's coming home and more than that he wants to preach Uh, come with me let's take a look at verse 16 says he went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom Uh, you can imagine the place must have been absolutely packed on that Sabbath day This isn't the first time he's gone to the synagogue. He's probably been at this synagogue most Sabbath days since he's a boy. But this is his first time in the synagogue since he got famous and he wants to preach. The place must have been buzzing. And so we know that kind of the, the... what would normally happen in the synagogue, they would begin by reading a psalm or two or singing a psalm or two, a little like we begin with some songs. Uh, they would uh, recite the Shema, which is uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. A hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, then a portion of the Torah would be read, the first five books of the Bible. And then sometimes a, 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 one of the prophets would be read, as, as happens here, and then someone would preach. And so uh, Luke tells us, Uh, He, that is Jesus, uh, stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, It was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now, notice that he he found the place. We'll see what he finds in just a moment. But the fact that he finds the place is significant. Because what it tells us is Jesus isn't getting up and preaching the next bit in the series. Um, Last week, we had Dr. Mark Stevens here. He preached on the passage that we asked him. He preached on our passage. This is Jesus' passage. He finds the place. He goes to Isaiah and says, all right, here, uh, this is what I want to talk on. And the reason that's significant is because it, it tells us that of all the passages in the Bible, uh, Jesus thinks that this is the one that is going to best capture and highlight and really set the agenda for his message in his ministry. So what was the passage? Well, uh, it's Isaiah 61. And there's a number of things I want to try and draw out for us from it in our second heading. But under this first heading, the preacher, all I simply want you to notice is that Isaiah 61 records the words of a preacher. So let's read it together. So this is Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 quoted in Luke. And Jesus is speaking. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The speaker from Isaiah 61 is a preacher. Not once, not twice, but three times. He says, my job is to proclaim. More than that, he says, God sent me to proclaim. And he's anointed me with his spirit in order to proclaim. He's a preacher. But that's just the Bible reading. It's what comes next that gets really spicy because uh, having read the passage, he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant for the day, and then he sits down. In those days, you would sit down to preach. I wouldn't mind that. We can bring up a chair. I can just. Um, he sits down, and Luke tells us the eyes of everyone was upon him. And then he begins his sermon with these words Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I guarantee you they've never heard a sermon like that before. Now, don't get me wrong, they, they would have heard sermons on Isaiah 61. Uh, I'll tell you in a moment, it's quite a popular passage for Jesus' time, but they wouldn't have been like that. You know, They would have started maybe a little bit like mine. Isaiah was a prophet from 700 years ago, and he preached during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Um, that's what they're used to. But on this day, in Nazareth, Jesus stands up and does something they've never heard before. And he says, you know what? You know that preacher that God said uh, he was going to send one day? He's talking about me. God has sent me into the world. He has anointed me with his spirit. And I am here today with a message from God for you. That'll preach. Now, before we move on, okay, okay, what was the message that he preached? Um, I do want to just pause very quickly and, and just uh, get you to notice something about what Jesus is claiming of himself here. Because we have been using so far the language of preacher, and that's what he was, but um, it's kind of incomplete in many ways. Because Jesus is not just claiming to be a preacher, but a prophet. He's not just an inspiring preacher, but an inspired prophet. He doesn't just speak words about God. He speaks the words of God, equipped with a message by God to speak on his behalf. In fact, later on in his ministry, he'll say, I'm not just speaking words of God. I am the word of God, second person of the Trinity, the son of God. The reason I bring that up is because it ought to shape how you think and respond and receive Jesus' message. See, when I preach, you're hearing the words of a preacher. My job, our job, anyone who preaches job, is to study God's word and say, okay, from the study that I, we've done, here's what I think God is saying. But then it's on you to go, is that actually what God's word says? When Jesus speaks, when you read Jesus' words, you're reading the words of God. You don't sit there and go, mm, I wonder if you got it right on this. You receive them and build your life upon them. That's what it means that Jesus speaks the words of God, that he is the word of God. And that is what billions of people since he first preached have done, and in part how he has left the mark on history that he has. So you go, first of all, Jesus, he's a preacher and a prophet, really. But second of all, what's the, what is the message? Because a prophet, a preacher comes with a message. What was Jesus' message? Well, uh, under this heading, what I want to try and do with you is 
explore what it was by first of all um, ruling out two things that it wasn't. Uh, in particular, ruling out something that people will often say Jesus' message was, again, using this text, and also something that people have sometimes, certainly in Jesus' day, wanted Jesus' message to be. Let me try and clarify. So first thing that Jesus' message wasn't was a message of liberation from injustice. Liberation from injustice. See, this, this will take various different forms. Uh, probably its most obvious form was a movement called liberation theology. Uh, it was quite big uh, among Catholic theologians in uh, Latin America in the 1950s and 1960s. And really, it, it tried to merge Marxist political philosophy with a theology of salvation as liberation from injustice. So it's kind of merging philosophy and theology in government, etc. Uh, so that, that would be one example, but it's also got a far more common and popular expression you know, amongst those who will say things like, oh, look, uh, there are really two parts to Jesus' ministry, uh, and therefore there needs to be two parts to the church. Right? There's gospel proclamation, and then there's social action. And so in order to be faithful to Jesus, the church needs to have these two inseparably intertwined. They, they must always go together. And so it's a little like you know, two halves of a set of scissors or two wings of a butterfly. Uh, it, it's got to go together. That's what the mission of the church needs to be. Now, you can understand when you look at today's passage why this passage might be so formative for people who think like that. Because just... Read it with me. Notice the types of people that Jesus says in his first sermon at home, who he's come for, who's preaching to. Uh, we won't read the whole thing all over again, but just notice the highlights. Good news for the poor, freedom for the prisoner, sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free. It really does seem like when Jesus kicks off his ministry, at least back at home, what he's saying is my, my key message is one of economic, political, physical, and social liberty. Now, it is important for us to recognize Jesus did spend a lot of his time with the weak and the oppressed and, and the lame. And actually, it was that group of people who tended to be, first of all, most aware of their need and therefore most receptive of his message. But to think that Jesus' message was exclusively or even primarily a message of economic, political, physical or social liberation really is to, to miss the real thrust of Jesus' message and in particular why he's used Isaiah 61 as his launchpad. You see, Isaiah 61, in its original context, was a message of hope given to Israel in captivity in Babylon. Or at least it would apply to them. So if you don't know the story, very quickly, God chooses a people, the nation of Israel, enters into a covenant with them, a covenant where I will be your God, you will be my people, I will bless you, and here's what's expected of you, certain obedience and living life in by my commands. Now, God upholds his end of the bargain, but they keep failing. Generation after generation after generation, they turn away, they rebel, they reject him, 
And so God, in the end, after multiple prophets he sends, is full of grace. But in the end, he says, enough is enough. I'm going to do what I said I would do. And so he sends them into exile. Uh, the northern kingdom is destroyed. The southern kingdom is sort of, they're taken captive by the Babylonians, exported into Israel, and sorry, into Babylon. And while in Israel, because of their sin, under the judgment of God, Israel becomes the poor, the oppressed, the captive, the blind. But then along comes Isaiah and says, one day, one day, Israel, your fortunes will be reversed. One day, there will be good news for the poor. One day, the captives will be set free because one day, God will forgive your sin, lift his hand of judgment and bring you back into his favor. And so yet, while Isaiah's message, it certainly has economic, physical and social implications, they all spring from and come as a consequence of Israel's spiritual liberation. God is going to forgive their sin and bring them back into relationship with him. So there's just quickly a, the first example of what Jesus' message was not. It wasn't primarily, certainly not exclusively, one of liberation from injustice. The second which is probably less popular today, but was certainly enormously popular in Jesus' time, was that Jesus had come to bring the judgment of God. You see, uh, we know from a number of sources outside the Bible, but really from the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are a series of kind of ancient scrolls that were written around the same time as Jesus. Uh, we've found them. They've been in a cave uh, in the, around the Dead Sea region. Really, what, what they show us is that Isaiah 61, so this passage, was a very popular passage at the time. And it was widely understood not simply to refer to a prophet, but to the Lord's anointed, the coming Messiah. And so you notice as we read out, it's the Lord has anointed me. That word anointed is Mashiach, which is where we get our word Messiah. And so it was understood, okay, this is a messianic text. Um, and more than that, we know that the Jews in the first century, Jesus' contemporaries, they all expected a very distinct kind of Messiah. When the Messiah came, they were expecting him not just to set them free from captivity, but also to destroy their enemies. And so, for example, if you go back to Isaiah 61, and read it in your Bible. We won't do it right now. I'll bring it up for you. But if you go back and read chapter 61 of Isaiah, verse 1 and 2, you'll notice that Jesus leaves off a little bit. Uh, Luke, when he quotes it for us, finishes with, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's all nice, warm, and fuzzy. He leaves off something that comes next. Let me show it to you. Isaiah 61, verse 2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That's what everyone is expecting. See, while they have returned from exile in Babylon, they're still under the rule of the Romans. They're captives in their own land. And so they're waiting for this deliverance. And so when Jesus gets up on that Sabbath and says, all right, let's go, Isaiah 61, they're all thinking, booyah. 
Right, this is the one. This is the time. God is going to, let's talk about favor for Israel and vengeance for everyone else. And then Jesus stops short of the vengeance bit. Now, we, we, don't, we don't know why exactly. Uh, I, I suspect Jesus goes on to elaborate on that in his sermon, but we only get the first couple of words, so we don't know. But I suspect at the very least what he's trying to do is give the people of Nazareth that day to help them see that he had come to be a very different kind of Messiah to the one that they were expecting. Uh, at least in his first coming, he wasn't coming to bring God's judgment. In his first coming, he was going to be a Messiah. His ministry was going to be marked by grace, by freedom, and by favor. So there are two things that it wasn't. What was it? Uh, what was Jesus' core message? Well, I think uh, one of the best ways, at least from this text, to summarize what Jesus' message was all about is with the language of spiritual jubilee. Spiritual jubilee. So why is that? Well, um, in was it verse 17, is it? Verse 19? The language of the year of the Lord's favor, that is very similar, almost identical language to that used in Leviticus 25 to describe the year of jubilee. Leviticus is one of the books of the Old Testament. And it outlines this law that the people of Israel had, that God had given to his people. And the year of Jubilee has got to be one of the most epic laws in the entire Bible. Because uh, every 50 years, all debts would be cancelled, all slaves would be set free, and all land would be returned to its original owner. Just think about that for a moment. All debts cancelled. You got something on your credit card at the moment? Cancelled. Uh, you got a mortgage? Cancelled. Although then your property probably goes back to someone else. But uh, uh, it, it's a remarkable law. Now, the point of the law was to protect the poor and the vulnerable and prevent the rich from oppressing them through amassing too much wealth. And so, for example, if you borrowed money and eventually you couldn't pay it off, you could, in Israel, as an Israelite, sell yourself into slavery to another Israelite in order to pay off your debt or kind of work off your debt. If you had kids, they would likewise be born as slaves. Or if you had property, you know, um, the promised land through the time of Joshua, that kind of each of the bits of land was distributed to different tribes and um, clans. And if you had property and you came on hard times, you could sell it. But then you're landless. Leviticus 25 says that every 50 years, on the Day of Atonement, a trumpet would be sounded and the year of the Lord's favor would be declared and debts would be released, property returned. Remarkable law, incredible provision of God for the poor in Israel. The thing is, as remarkable as the law was, uh, there's no evidence to suggest that it was ever actually implemented. Uh, now, it might have been, but there's no evidence to suggest it was, and many people think it's frankly pretty unlikely. Because let's face it, you can't actually cancel a debt. There's no such thing. Uh, the person who cancels a debt is actually paying the debt. If you owe me money and I say, don't worry, really, I'm absorbing the debt and paying it myself. You can't imagine that too many rich people in Israel would be all that excited about the idea of just completely cancelling the debt and paying the debt for all the poor people that owed them. Uh, 
And so as remarkable as it was, that there isn't really any evidence to suggest that it was ever implemented. But then along comes Jesus. And in the synagogue in Nazareth that day, Jesus' message was God is about to do something that no one has ever been willing to do in the history of the world. In my ministry, God is sounding a trumpet. In my ministry, God is saying that the year of the Lord's favor has arrived. He is canceling the debts. He's returning people to their spiritual home. He's giving us a fresh start. Why? Because you no longer need to be held captive by fear of death or the judgment of God because he sent me to set you free and bring you home. Grace City, that's the message that was on the lips of the preacher from Nazareth. Is that the message that you believed? Is that what you think the preacher from Nazareth said? Or was it something else? Have you bought into maybe the gospel of liberation from injustice? Now, now don't get me wrong. Liberation from injustice is an important thing. It's, an, it's a good thing. And uh, if the Lord wills, most likely we'll spend a series talking about some of these you know, injustice issues later in the year. But... It's not your greatest need, uh, and it's not the pointy end of Jesus' message. The pointy end of Jesus' message, the core message, was that he had come to set you free from captivity to sin and death and bring you into favor with God. There's the preacher. There's the message. Let's finish together by thinking, how was that message received? Well, you would think it would be received fairly well, wouldn't you? Like if we just think about it in financial terms, someone goes around saying, your debts are cancelled, awesome, thank you. Uh, but one of the remarkable things about Jesus' ministry is how so many of his own countrymen didn't receive his message. And actually, you, you get a perf I said this is a microcosm of Jesus' ministry. You see this clearly demonstrated with the people from Nazareth. Uh, because while the initial response to this sermon is actually quite strong, it's also marked by a touch of skepticism. Let's take a look at verse 22. It says, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But then Luke tells us they started asking, Isn't this Joseph's son? Initially, they seemed to like the message, maybe even appreciated the, the, the touch of grace to it. Ah, well, I guess we'll get the Gentiles with vengeance later. Let's enjoy the favor for a time. But eventually they start asking, well, how, isn't this Joseph's little boy? Isn't this the, the same kid that grazed his knee over there? I mean, he can preach, but is he the Messiah? Uh, not so sure. And so they start doubting. Now, now, Jesus, knowing their doubts, reading their minds, he comes back at him with this. Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Right? So clearly they've heard rumors, not just of the preaching, but of the, of the miracles that Jesus did in other places, including like here, Capernaum. Capernaum, another town and village in Galilee. And they're starting to ask Jesus or wanting to at the very least, hey, do for us what you did for them. Almost like they think he owes it to them. You can imagine them, you know, the riffraff at the back of the crowd. Don't forget where you came from, boy. You did it for them. You healed their sick. What about little Johnny here? You grew up with little Johnny. You got the power to do it. You did it for them. Why not us? You too good for us now? 
you, you can hear those thoughts in the description. And yet, this is what Jesus says, Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Uh, in the context of this passage, that, that little phrase is dripping with irony because that, that language of accepted is the same word translated favor back up in verse 19. In other words, uh, the very one who came to preach the year of God's favor didn't find favor with those he came to preach to. The one who came to preach acceptance from God wasn't accepted by those he came to preach to. And so Jesus offers them a warning. We won't read it. It's verses 25 to 27. But he does it through citing two examples from the Old Testament prophets. So the first is from the prophet Elijah. Uh, you can read about him in the book of 1 Kings. There was a severe famine in the land during Isaiah's time uh, and a drought, and it was partly because of God's judgment on the people. And then at one point, God sends Elisha, no, Elijah, sorry, outside the land of Israel to a region called Sidon, where he then works a miracle for this poor widow. That's the first example. The second example was basically illustrating the same thing, but at the different end of the economic spectrum. Because this time, the example is from Elijah's successor, Elisha, the prophet. And this time, Jesus says, you know, there were plenty of people, uh, like there were plenty of widows in Elijah's day, there were plenty of uh, people with leprosy in Elisha's day, in Israel. But God didn't send Elisha to any of them. Instead, rather than caring for the Israelite with leprosy, God actually sends Elisha to heal the leprosy of the commander of the Syrian army. Now, just think that through. The commander of the Syrian army, the Syrians were the enemies of God's people and used to regularly invade Israel. And yet God sends Elisha to heal the commander of the army of leprosy. They are the two examples that Jesus quotes to the people of Nazareth, his hometown. What's he getting at? He's sending them a warning. You cannot presume upon God's favor and nor can you dictate who gets to receive mercy. So yeah, you might have grown up in Nazareth, same town as Jesus, but you can't twist his arm to get a miracle out of God. He doesn't owe you anything. And actually, if God wants to, he wants to heal a Roman official servant. Romans were in control at the time. They were the equivalent of the Syrians. If he wants to heal a Roman official son in Capernaum, as he does in Luke chapter 7, that's his prerogative. Well, it's called grace. You can't, you can't dictate who gets it. You can't, it's not owed you. Now, naturally, uh, that doesn't go down too well. And so uh, the people of Nazareth are filled with fury, we're told. And then we read this. They got up, drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. It seems like they've decided that he's a false prophet, so they've got to kill him. After all, how could God have a message for us you know, the people of Nazareth, good Jews, growing up in the same town as the Messiah. How could possibly there be a world in which we miss out on God's favor, given everything we've done and who we are? And unworthy, undeserved Gentile sinners receive forgiveness and a place in God's spiritual family. They, they can't see it. Which really, I think, brings us to the heart 
of why Jesus has been such a dominant and actually divisive figure throughout history. Because you see, in their heart of hearts, the people of Nazareth believed that God was in their debt. They thought, because of our ethnicity, our place of birth, our religious observance, the good works that we've done, God owes us. We should be in his favor because of the way that we've lived and who we are. That's exactly how most moral people or religious people think today. Is that how you think? That somehow, again, you wouldn't put it like this, that somehow because of your religious observance, I come to church, I say my prayers, I give this, or I'm just a generally good person, God kind of owes me. I should be able to experience God's favor because of, if that's how you think, you will find Jesus and his actual message incredibly offensive. Why? Because it's the exact opposite of that. God isn't in your debt. You're in God's debt. It doesn't matter how many times you say your prayers, how many good deeds you do, how many times you give to church, none of it's going to pay off the debt of sin. You're the slave. I'm the slave. We are the slaves. We are the captives. We're the ones in danger. We are, to use the language of Isaiah, we're the poor. We're the oppressed. We're the blind. We're the captives. Unless, of course, you're willing to trust in Jesus. See, Jesus claimed not just to proclaim forgiveness, but to secure forgiveness, to set us free. You know, the, the, the language of Isaiah keeps proclaim, 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 but there is one little action to set the oppressed free. And Jesus came not just as a preacher, not just as a prophet, but as a redeemer. How? Well, remember what he said about Jubilee, or what we said? You can't just cancel debts. There's no such thing. Someone's got to pay it. To cancel a debt is to absorb it and pay it on behalf of someone else. That's why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the debt of sin that you couldn't pay. There has never been anyone like Jesus. Jesus, of all people in history, is unique in that he lived the perfect life that you and I just couldn't live. He had no debt of sin. He alone deserved to live in God's favor. And yet, out of love for people like you and I and in obedience to God, on the cross, he dies in our place and so doing pays our debt of sin. You know, the reason Jesus slips through the crowd here is because his hour had not come, right? They try to get him to throw him off a cliff. He slips through. No one can kill Jesus. Jesus in John will say, nobody takes my life. I lay it down. I've got authority to lay it down. I've got authority to pick it up. At the cross, Jesus, he wasn't killed at the cross so much as he laid down his life at the cross. That was him putting down the credit card of his life and saying, for their sin, I'm covering it. It's my decision. I'm redeeming them from captivity, from blindness, from oppression. I'm setting them free to enjoy the favor of a relationship with God. So let me close. And as I do, I suppose I want to ask you, how will you, have you responded to Jesus? Will you, like so many billions throughout history, 
respond by with the humility to say, you know what, I think I am in debt, but I trust in Christ and what he's done. So I, I want to receive that forgiveness, uh, embrace it, and then live in the favor of the Lord. Or will you, like the people of Nazareth, show contempt for his grace and in so doing miss out on his favor? In particular, I, I just want to say a quick word to you. If you grew up with Jesus... By which I mean, you know, some of us, you know, like me, you grow up in a Christian family. Uh, maybe you grew up in a church family. If the people of Nazareth can teach us anything, it's that familiarity grows contempt. Maybe as you, you start this series, uh, maybe what you need to be praying for is fresh eyes, a soft heart, to see again the preacher from Nazareth. And the remarkable thing that he came to do. Because God owes us nothing. But in Christ, he's given us everything. It's in the words of that great hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Lord God, and... Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. Instead, you were willing to do what none of us ever would. You cancelled our debt. And in the life of your Son, you paid the debt on our behalf. And would you now help us to live in the light of your favour, rejoicing in who we are because of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.